Now, we're going to look at the, the book of Esther again. You may think, well, what in the world does this book of Esther have to do uh, with the resurrection? I think you're going to be amazed. Um, uh, this is not something that I came up with. This is uh, from uh, a lot of excellent scholarship, and I've used some wonderful books, both historical and uh, commentaries, uh, and so I hope that you will uh, get what, what's going on here at the end of Esther. And then next week, what I plan to do is a very special conclusion, and I'm going to take us through the entire book of Esther, all 10 chapters, hopefully in 30 minutes, and I'll show you the Ark of Redemption, the historic Ark of Redemption that Jesus himself said is in every single book of your Bible. Every book of the Bible, Jesus said, points to him. And we should be able, if that's true, then we should be able to trace that uh, through any book of the Bible. And I'm going to do that with you in the book of Esther, and I think, I think you really enjoy it. In your bulletin, we've printed the, uh, uh, the words. I'm not going to read this whole long section, uh, chapter 8 and 9, but we've picked out the verses that are pertinent, then I'll fill in the blanks later. So now hear God's word. On the day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept, and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his sight, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained the mastery over those who hated them. Therefore, they called these days Purim. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them 
that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan and province and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. This is the word of the law. The word of the Lord, sorry, it is the word of the law. Okay, so let me give you a quick, just quick run through through the book of Esther, because I, I know some of you are here today for the first time, or perhaps you, you, you don't really know the story. The book of Esther was written very late in the history of Israel. The, the Jews were in exile uh, in Persia. And a lot of them had been released under the Edict of Cyrus, and they were able to return and to start rebuilding Jerusalem, which had been completely decimated, and rebuilding the temple. But many of the Jews had stayed behind in Persia. They made a life there. They'd been there for a couple generations, and they, they didn't want to go back and get into the, uh, uh, the whole building project that was going to be going on there. So the book of Esther starts out in the Persian Empire, in the 400s BC. And this king, Ahasuerus, very famous, the Greek historian Herodotus wrote first-hand knowledge of the Greek and Persian wars. And it's fascinating. I read a lot of what Herodotus wrote. It corresponds very nicely, not everything, but some of it corresponds very nicely with this story, so that we have extra-biblical historic testimony of the veracity or the truthfulness of the Esther story. Another thing that you all will remember from the beginning of the series some eight eight weeks ago, uh, there's not one mention of God in the book of Esther. No miracles, no prayers, no... Nothing supernatural. In fact, there are, there are loads of coincidences and reversals, like we call them per- peripeties or peripeteia. These reversals, uh, a lot of, lot of humor is built into this book, uh, irony, you're looking at it, you're going, oh my gosh, this is... But God is never mentioned. And the author did it on purpose. It's by leaving him out, leaving God out of the narrative, highlights... Uh, his presence in the narrative. And after a, the first few chapters, you start saying, oh my goodness, what is going on? How could that possibly, how can all these coincidences be happening? And so it heightens the presence of God, not in any way diminishes it. So very quickly, here's the story. The king, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and this is has an historical fact, called all of his generals and all of his minis- military men to the palace in Susa to spend six months of banqueting and feasting and drinking. And the king displayed all of his might and his glory. The Persian Empire was renowned for its army, for its architecture, for its, its uh, culture, uh, its wealth, its power. Of all the ancient empires, Persia, Medo-Persia, may have been the greatest of all. Their empire was from Egypt in the west all the way to India in the east. It covered a vast, I don't think there's another empire that has ever been so large geographically. 
So he's there to get all his military people and his nobles together, feasting and drinking and planning their war against the Greeks, which they went and fought against the Greeks. During the feast, at the last week, everybody's drunk. And Xerxes decides to bring out his beautiful wife, Vashti, the queen, and parade her before all these drunk men. And she said, no, I'm not coming. And this throws the entire empire, the most powerful man on the earth cannot control his wife, which we are all familiar with as nothing has changed. In any case, the king deposes Vashti, throws her eyes, says, you're not queen anymore. And his advisors say, let's gather a bunch of virgins and bring them to Susa, and we'll bring them, we'll get them ready. We'll take six months to, to give them cosmetics and get them all, all tidy and smelling good, and then we will roll them into you one at a time at night. And the one who sexually pleases you the more, it's a very sensuous, and we don't want to be, have kids here. I mean, it's, the author doesn't pull any punches. This is going to be about a night of sex. And the one who pleases you, King Ahasuerus, let her be queen. So they gather up this people, these virgins, and one of them happens to be a young Jewish girl, a teenager. Her name is Hadassah, or Esther. Her uncle is Mordecai. And the only thing in the book of Esther that even remotely connects this book to the Bible is the fact that they were Jewish. No other mention of anything religious, only that they were Jewish. Esther pleases the queen, and she becomes, uh, pleases the king, and she becomes queen. Mordecai is elevated to some civil servant job, kind of a low-grade civil servant job, and while he's doing that, he hears of a plot to assassinate Xerxes in his bedroom. And this actually happened, Xerxes actually did get assassinated. There were like four or five attempts on his life uh, because he liked to fool around and he didn't, wasn't satisfied with just his concubines and his harem. He went and got his nobles, his generals, you know, everybody, anybody's wife. They had a pretty wife. He would mess around. So it's not uh, too much of a stretch to see why he was assassinated. But Mordecai spoils the plot. And so the, the two guys that were planning to assassinate him are killed. And in chapter 3, where just when you expect Mordecai and Esther to kind of rise to the surface, she's queen and, you know, Mordecai had saved the king's life, you would think that they were going to come to the top. But instead, a reversal. And this villain, whose name was Haman, was an Agagite, and and if you know the Jewish history, the history of Israel, the Agagites were the, the descendants of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were the first ones to oppose Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. They were the first ones to engage uh, uh, Israel in battle, and Joshua destroyed their army, and God pronounced a curse on the Amalekites and said, I'm going to come back. One of these days, we're going, to, we're going to wipe them out. We're going to destroy them completely. But it didn't happen. 
And here is the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of God's people who gets elevated to this place of power and glory. The king elevates Haman. He ignores Mordecai, elevates Haman, and Mordecai refuses to bow down. Haman grows to hate him, so Haman plots to kill him. And there's all kinds of intrigue in the story, which I really can't get into now. But Esther is challenged in chapter 4 to go before the king and to have him reverse the decree, the edict of death against the Jews. Because not only Haman didn't just want to destroy Mordecai, he had the king write a declaration and edict to kill every Jew in the empire, a genocide. And so Esther takes her life in her hands and she appears before the king unbidden, which was a threat to her life. You had to be invited. And she went in without being invited. And she didn't ask him to spare her people. She said, come to a banquet tomorrow. I don't want anything from you, my king. I just want to serve you and love you and show you respect. And I'm going to provide a banquet for you and your prime minister, Haman. So they go to the banquet. And at the banquet, the king says, what do you want, Esther? Anything, half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And Esther says, I only want one thing from you, king. I want to serve you another day. I want to have another banquet for you tomorrow. Really remarkable. The king says, great. So as they're leaving, Haman's feeling really good about himself. He's the only one invited to the banquets. The king, Esther, and Haman. They go back, and as Haman is leaving the palace, Mordecai is there, refuses to bow down. Haman goes home. He's furious. I can't stand it another day. I have to kill him now. So he builds a gallows. Now, the gallows were not a hangman's gallows. It was a pole with a sharpened end, and they would impale the, the offender on it and raise them up real high. It was a, a gruesome and horrific way to die, and it was a precursor. The Persians invented crucifixion, and so this was a, a precursor to crucifixion. The next day at the banquet, Esther does expose Haman's treachery. The king gets furious, and Haman is executed on the gallows instead of Mordecai the next day. And that's where we left it off last week. And so Esther as I read a moment ago, falls down and begs the king for the life of her people. So we're going to look at three things this Easter that are truly remarkable about this story that never mentions God or redemption, really, of any kind, although it is here. We're going to ask three questions. Here they are, very quickly. We'll go through them quick, but here's your outline. How can Esther asks the question that all humanity has been asking going back to cavemen days, back to Neanderthals, the ancient old people hundreds of thousands of years ago. Humans began to bury their dead in graves with ornamentation and all. It's amazing. Everywhere you look, the creation is pushing against death. And Esther asks the question, how can I live with this future? Now she's talking about the death of her people, but she's asking a larger cosmic question about how do we as human beings live with death in our windshield? 
I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how good looking you are, what kind of a career you have. I don't care. Nothing. You realize, we all realize the horror that is ahead of us. We will die. And for some reason, we are repelled by the idea of death. She shows, when she asks this question, she shows deep, deep humility. How can I live with this? If I please the king, if I found favor, if it seems right to you, if I am pleasing in your eyes, please let an order be written to revoke the genocide against my people. How can I live with this? Death. Not just she's talking about the death of her people, but she's asking the immortal question of every human being. And I would go even further. If, like we hear sometimes in our culture, death is natural, it's just a part of life. It's just natural. If that's true, ask yourself this question. If death is natural, then why does everything from human beings all the way down to viruses and bacteria resist it and push back against it? We have to come up with vaccines and antibiotics and every other thing. And when you, you, you look around, Every animal, you know, if there's threat to its life, it pulls back. And human beings, the most highly evolved of any of God's creatures, and I know some people don't believe in evolution. I'm not sure I believe in evolution. But the, the idea is that we are created in the image of God. You would think, with all of our vast intelligence, and we've been around for thousands of years, you would think we would have gotten used to it. Even the, even the greatest relativist in the world who doesn't believe in any truth looks both ways before they cross the street. Because death is repulsive. And she could not stand it. Why is it so alien to us? Why is it so hateful? Why do we mourn and grieve when someone dies? Every Memorial Day I go to the, to the cemetery and I visit all my relatives there. And every year, it doesn't get it, it, it. You stand there and you weep. You look in there. You know their body is decaying. And you know that your destiny is there. My goodness. The question how can I live with death in my windshield, in my future? It's there. Maybe it's a long time off. Maybe it's tomorrow. You don't know. For Mordecai, it was the next day that we're going to put him on a gallows. God reversed that. Why? I'll tell you why. We're going to look at this next week a little bit more. We were created in the image of God, and God is not a God of death. God is a God of the living. Jesus said that Himself. When He was challenged, when He said before Abraham was, I am ego me." The Jews couldn't understand that. They said, How, who do you think you are? Abraham's dead. And Jesus said, no, no. We serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if they're dead, then that's not the way to talk about God's people. They're alive, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are created in the image of God. And everything was good, very good. God even put a tree of life 
in the middle of the garden and, and it was a kind of sacrament. You know, as long as they obeyed God and went and ate that fruit, they had somehow, kind of like what happens with us with the Holy Sacrament, is somehow it's imp- imparted life to them. And he told them, this other tree, the knowledge of good and evil, I don't want you to touch that tree. I don't want you to eat from that tree because I only want you to know life. I don't want you to know good and evil. I only want you to know good. So leave that tree alone. And he warned them, in the day you eat, dying you shall die, dust you were created, dust you will return. In Hebrew he said this, it's, it's chilling. Yomata akal, minhu moit moit. Minhu mot mot, the day you eat, die, die. We translate it, you will surely die. He said, death, death, the day you eat. So what is the cause of death that we are so repelled by? The cause of death is one single thing, and that thing is sin. Now, I know in in cultures going back time immemorial, everybody likes to define sin for themselves. And if you don't think something is wrong, then to you it's not sin. So we kind of decide what we want to be sin and what we don't. And if you don't accept it, you just say, you know, the Bible may say that that's a sin, but I don't care. I, you know, I have my own ideas about those things. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, you you go out and say, yeah, I need some money. I'm going to go to the 7-Eleven. I'm going to rob the 7-Eleven. You know, you rob the 7-Eleven. They take you to the judge. The judge says you're going to jail for robbing 7-Eleven. And you say, come on, you know, I needed the money. And I really don't believe in that law. Good luck with that. Or, we know some of these people. They don't believe in paying taxes. I don't have to pay my taxes. I don't believe the government's exploiting us. Blah, 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 blah. Jesus said, pay your taxes. Whether you like it or not, you pay them. Whether they're extortative or not, you pay them. The taxes that we pay today are nothing compared to what the people in Jesus' day had to pay. So you go to the judge and you say, I don't believe in taxes. I don't believe in income tax. Well, you're going to go to jail. You see, you can't make up your own laws and you can't make up your own mind about what's right and wrong. And the Bible has told us what is right and wrong. And he said, I'm, I'm king, you're not. I, you obey me, here's life. He put them in a garden, for goodness sakes. He provided everything they needed. He said, just don't eat from this tree. Trust me. Trust me. And they didn't trust him. And all of humanity has been playing. And listen, if we'd have been there, we would have done the same thing because we do it every day. Every day of our life, we shake our fist in God's face somehow, some way, usually not the big things, but somehow, and tell Him no. I do it my way. We get our theology from the great theologian Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Well, good. Here's the, you know, you're there, and he goes, okay, bye. <laughs> and the trap door opens up. He goes, oh, gosh, doesn't God love everybody? Yes, He does. But he is not uh, just anybody. He's Almighty God. He created this. It's his thing. It's not our thing. We don't own ourselves. 
And I'll tell you, modern Americans, we struggle with that because we have inalienable rights. And Jesus said, I'll give you an inalienable, I'll give you a right that is inalienable. Take up your cross and follow me to the death. There it is. There's your right. Now, I could, I could tell you a whole bunch of other stuff and make you, you know, think Christianity is going to fix all your problems. It does not fix your problems. But it does address the question, how to face a windshield that's filled with death. Scripture says the soul that sins shall die. The Apostle Paul, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Apostle James said our over-desire, our epithemias, the over-desires, even for good things sometimes, that over-desire gives birth to sinful actions and those sinful actions, if they're allowed to grow, eventually give birth to to death and our Westminster Shorter Catechism our children's catechism says what is sin and the answer is sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God and how many laws are there it's not like you have to memorize a whole big long list there's ten of them and Jesus even compressed them for us knowing how dumb we are down to two and said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So now you just got to remember two. And then the Apostle John comes along and he just compresses it even further and he says, just love God with all your heart because if you do, you will love your neighbor. And if you don't love your neighbor, don't fool yourself and think that you love God. You don't. Sacrifice and service and a brokenness, looking out at the world and loving that world like one of our pastors in Tennessee says, loving it back to life. That's what Christianity teaches. Total sacrifice on our part, not in order to gain God's favor, but because He gave us. If, if I'm pleasing in your sight, if... She is appealing to the character of the king, and he was not that great of a king. So when we appeal to the character of our king, we're appealing to someone who is absolutely perfect and never, never, never says, no, you have to do more. You know, I'm going to hold my nose at you. No. He throws his arms wide and takes us in. So that's the first question. How can I live with this in my windshield? Second question. How can I change? That's the future. You see, he's, she's asking big cosmic questions. How do I deal with this future? Then she says, what do I do about the past? How can I change the past when the king's edict... Listen, let this soak in. The king's edict cannot be undone. This was a law, I don't know, they haven't really found a lot of evidence for this law, but it makes, it makes kind of makes sense. When the king declared something, to go back on it would have cast a dispersion on the king. It made him look like, you know, he didn't know what he's doing. Can't have that, right? So the king's word was law, even if it was bad law, like this, you know, let's destroy this whole population of people. It was ridiculous. So Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, 
does something different. It's, it's a little hard. Let me see if I can explain it to you. He says to them, look, I can't undo the law, but here's what I will do. I will give Mordecai my ring and my authority, and you, Esther, and you, Mordecai, can write another edict. Great, but you can't, in the edict, you can't touch the old law. You've got to leave that law alone. You with me? Everybody tracking with me? Can't just say, old law undone, new law. You have to write some other law that will somehow counterpoint the law that already stands. Now hang with me. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps for a minute because this is profound. I wish I was, I just, I found it. Karen Job said this, not me. She's an Old Testament theologian that I love. Look at verses 7 and 8. I've given you the house, the property, even the life of Haman. Write as you please. Just write, what you, what I, write another edict, whatever you want. Can't undo the other one. The edict written in the name of the king and sealed with his ring cannot be re- revoked. So he's saying you can't change the old one. And whatever new one you come up with, that will stand. But you can't touch the old one, you see. So Esther and Mordecai had to be very creative. And if you take some time and read the text, it just takes 20 minutes to read the whole book of Esther. It's fascinating. Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, identifies a problem. And and I want to just give it to you in one word. It's a little... Irrevocability. In other words, the law could not just be revoked. It was irrevocable. So they had to write another law. Xerxes acknowledges that. You see, even though he... decreed death to a population of people, they had done nothing worthy of death. He just did it because he was drunk and Haman offered to pay him 10,000 talents of silver and didn't tell him they were Jews. So it was, very, it was a very manipulative act on the part of Haman. In stark contrast, you have this picture in the whole Bible of God, the great king, who pronounced a sentence of death upon humanity, not for nothing, but for cosmic, absolute treason. And think about it. When you sin, you know you've sinned. You can sin a little sin or you can sin a big sin. doesn't matter. What happens inside? What, you know. You feel guilty. You feel like, i got to do something. i got to undo the sin. But the Bible says you can't undo the sin. It stands. The sentence is there. Well, can't we do something? Can't we do some good works? Can't we, can't we pay some money? We can pay the church? Yeah, that one will work. Bring your checkbook and write big checks to the church and we will make sure that you are forgiven. And we'll tell you that, but we can't make sure. Okay, never mind. Look, you, you can't. what are you going to do about your sin? How are you going to deal with death? In the windshield. How can I change the past? It cannot be undone. So Esther and Mordecai come up really, it's really good. And here's what they came up with in verse 11 and 12. And really the middle section that we couldn't read. It's just too long. Here's their plan. The king allows you, he told them, Esther, Mordecai, I'm allowing you to write a letter in my name and send it to all the Jews throughout my kingdom that they have permission 
to defend their lives. In other words, he doesn't revoke the death sentence. They don't revoke the death sentence. They're very smart in their letter. They don't revoke the death sentence. They say, fine, but now you have a right to defend. So if anybody comes against you to obey the first law, you have another law to where you can defend yourself. And listen to what it says. You can defend yourself in every city, your lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force that attacks you, children and women included, to plunder their goods on one day throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus. And that day was the 13th day of Adar. And they rested on the 14th day of Adar. Keep that plugged in. There was a counter decree made that allowed them to defend themselves, folks. But all that counter-decree did was make more blood, more death, more destruction, not redemption, not reclamation, and really not an end to this vicious cycle of death and destruction. All it did was allow them to defend themselves. And that's great. That's good as far as it goes. But it ended with Jesus. That ended with Jesus. And here's how we know. How do I face the past? Or how do I face the future with death in it? How do I deal with the past, my past, my sins? What do I possibly give and offer to God? Well, Mordecai and Esther figured, we'll just, get, we'll just do the transactional thing Life for life, death for death, you fight us, we'll fight you, you kill us, we kill you, we take your stuff, we plunder your goods, you plunder our goods, back and forth, back and forth. But then chapter 9 comes along, and the Holy Spirit, although he's not even mentioned, says this. Now in the twelfth month, Adar, on the thirteenth day of the month, the king's original edict to be carried out that the Jews were to be killed and not, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over their enemies. In verse 19 it says, the Jews in every village, in every town, in all the provinces, on the fourteenth day of Adar, they celebrated with gladness and joy. They had a banquet. They sent gifts of food to one another. It was a big party because they had been delivered from Haman, the ancient enemy of the Jews. This Amalekite who in, in a very real way represented the serpent from the Garden of Eden. They crushed his head. Pretty cool. And they called these days Purim. Pur was a lot, and Purim is plural of lots. They cast dice. Because that's how Haman decided the day he was going to kill the Jews, was by casting lots. Okay? Fortune-telling. And the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring to keep and remember these days, Purim. Okay, here we go. I'm going to finish, and I hope you... If I don't tie it all together well enough for you to understand it, it's your fault, not mine. But no, look, if you have questions, I mean, this is a lot to think about. But hey, it's Easter. You've had, how many of you have eaten a lot of chocolate this morning? Yeah, liar, liar, pants on fire. We all know, your mind should be going, right, from the sugar. Okay. Listen to this, Karen Jobes, uh, this theologian that, that I was uh, using her commentary. 
If the author is using poetic license by introducing this element of irrevocability, perhaps he is making a theological point about human destiny. This is brilliant. Human destiny. Just as Xerxes, Ahasuerus of Persia, could not simply rescind the first decree of death, God, the king of the universe, cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. He can't just say, Ali, Ali, oxen free, and injustice was committed, treason was committed. Somebody had to pay. And you know that's true. If somebody steals from you, you will go to court to get recompense. You don't just say, oh, that's okay. Maybe if it's a loaf of bread. But if they come into your village and they kill your, your husband and your sons and they rape your wives and your sisters and they burn your house to the ground and they haul your children off as slaves, you are not going to be okay saying, oh well, I guess I have to forgive. Are you? But here in suburbia, hey, we don't even know what it is. We, you know, get a dent in our car, we lose our minds. But what if something serious, something horrible happens? We want justice. And that's the kind of God we serve. A God of holiness and justice and righteousness. He can't simply say, Ali, Ali, oxen free, no foul, no nothing, it's okay. Because something horrible was done. He cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. So here, listen to this. This is, this is, this is earth moving. So instead, God issues a counter decree of life. A counter decree of life. Not just another decree of more death. No, a counter decree of life. And he calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ, my son. Purim was celebrated the last day of the 12th month of the Jewish liturgical year. They just celebrated it last month. But in Exodus chapter 12, Moses told the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, I'm going to give you a new first day of the year. Not Rosh Hashanah as, as the, the modern Jews uh, practice it, but a liturgical new year. On the 14th day of the month Nisan, this shall be the beginning of years, of the year for you. And here's what you do. You take a lamb and you cut its throat and you put its blood in a bowl and you take a bunch of hyssop and you dip it in the bowl and you strike the blood across the lentil of your home, the frame of your door, because tonight judgment comes. And if the blood is there, I will pass over. No blood you die. Put him ends the year with a celebration. Passover starts 
a year, starts the Jewish liturgical year, starts with the death of the Savior and ends with an edict of life. It ends with Easter. We went to a real Seder at the synagogue with the rabbi leading it. So we are enormously blessed people. But we don't celebrate Passover anymore because Jesus rose from the grave. And this is his body and this is his blood. Because God's children are human beings, Jesus was made flesh and blood. Because the children were human beings. You see, because we're flesh and blood, because of our frailty, Jesus took on that frailty. In other words, he took on the ability to be killed, to suffer death, the edict of death. He had to be a human being so that he could have the sentence of death pronounced upon him that we deserve. Because God's children are human beings, he was made flesh and blood. Jesus also became flesh and blood for, listen, only as a human being could he die. Only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who live their lives with the fear of death, with that windshield filled with death. This was the way to change what's in your windshield from death to life, an edict of life. The birth, life, death, the grave, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus into the heavens, and the session. In other words, there's a scene of Jesus being seated on the throne of God, and and God himself, the great king, handing his son the scepter of righteousness. It's in Psalm 110. Thy throne, O God, forever and ever, the Lord said unto my Lord, Jesus seated on the throne. The birth, life, death, grave, resurrection, ascension, session of Jesus the kings does this. Listen, folks. He takes the past, the present, and he transforms them into an eth- the past and the future. He takes the past and the future and he transforms them into an eternal present. We call it the resurrection. When you are raised to new life, there's not going to be a tomorrow and a tomorrow and a tomorrow and days drifting away as Shakespeare wrote. There's going to be an eternal presence. And here's here's how we know. Every week how we know. Not because I get up here and tell you but because of what happens next. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup now, you do proclaim, you show forth the Lord's death 
past until he comes in the future. In Jesus Christ alone do we find an eternal presence, a resurrection, an edict of life. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will not cast you out. Come learn of me, I'm gentle, I'm lowly. And I will provide you rest for your soul. So will you trust him, folks? This Easter, man, I hope that some of you may say, you know, I'm not going to go another year without bowing my knee to this great king who loved me this way, gave his life for me. And that every week I can come into a building and I can taste and see that the Lord is good. I can take his body and his blood and I can symbolically and with all the power of his Holy Spirit here to do it, become unified with him in union with him. I don't know why people are not breaking down the doors of churches to get in. God help us. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, as we come before you today, this one day of the year in which you started a new year, a new eternity, past, present, future, all in one person, Jesus Christ the King who gave his body and blood for us. Thank you. Help us. Save us, have mercy upon us, and grant us your grace. Amen.